Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Spy Talk, a podcast at the intersection of intelligence, foreign policy, national security, and military operations with Jeff Stein and Gene Meserve. Hi there. Welcome to Spy Talk. I'm Jeff Stein. And I'm Gene Meserve. Great to have you with us. We're going to take a deep dive into intelligence history today, revisiting a very controversial episode from the summer of 1980 about a clandestine plot by Ronald Reagan's campaign manager, Bill Casey, later to become Reagan's CIA director, to persuade Iran to hold on to American hostages and stymie Jimmy Carter's bid for a second term. Author Kai Bird has a chapter on it in his new book, The Outlier, The Unfinished Presidency of Jimmy Carter. At the center of it is the legendary spy master, William J. Casey, who became Ronald Reagan's CIA director. But in 1980, in the summer, he was Reagan's uh, campaign manager. Mm-hmm. And of course, Casey is is an unguided missile. He's you know this legendary OSS guy. That was the most fun he had in his whole life was working for the OSS during World War II out of London. And uh, he loved covert action. Jeff, it's a really interesting interview about a piece of history many of us will indeed remember. But first, in this incredibly toxic political environment. It can be tough to find anything the two political parties agree on, with this exception, China. This week, Republicans and Democrats in the Senate voted overwhelmingly to pass the U.S. Innovation and Competition Act. It will invest $250 billion in science and tech to counter Beijing's growing political, economic, and military power. And this week, Florida's Republican governor, Ron DeSantis, signed legislation to combat Chinese corporate espionage and its influence on academic institutions. There is no single entity that exercises a more pervasive, nefarious influence across a wide range of American industries and institutions than the Communist Party of China. I spoke about China with William Evanina. He headed up the U.S. National Counterintelligence and Security Center during the Trump administration after a long career with the FBI and CIA and counterespionage. He's also founder and CEO of the Evanina Group. I asked him whether the current challenge posed by China was being hyped or not. First of all, we're probably sitting around $500 billion a year in economic loss just in the theft of intellectual property and trade secrets, just from China, 500 billion a year. So say, well, that's a lot of money. Well, what is it? That's $4,000 for every American family of four after taxes. So when someone says, what, it's not that big a deal, I think American families would say otherwise. Secondarily, from from a global positioning of power in 2010, in the Forbes, top 15 or top 10 companies in the world, China had zero in 10, 2010. They currently have six out of 10. And in in 2025, they're going to have eight. So look at that from an economic perspective, you can extrapolate where the U.S. is going, where China is going. 
also, you know, they don't need, I would say, court orders, subpoenas, Title Threes to collect on their cell phones around the globe. China currently has 55% ownership of the global smartphones, 55%, soon to have 65% in three years. That means they can listen and take data from every one of those phones around the globe. You add that to the Huawei issue with the infrastructure, they have an amazing global listening platform to collect intelligence. Also, when we look at what they've done in the last five or six years, just on data theft, data is the new commodity, right? It's the um, most thing that we have, we cherish most that you and I cherish, everywhere from our financial data all the way down to our DNA, right? When you look at the numbers and the data that we have, you look at Anthem, you look at OPM, you look at, you know, Equifax. Every single adult in America had all of their data stolen by the Communist Party of China through Equifax. 80% of Americans have had all of their data stolen by the Communist Party of China. That just means the other 20% haven't had it all stolen. So if no one's concerned about that, that's wonderful, but the threat is real. Why are you so worried about the data? The data, first of all, two things. Number one, they provide knowledge of you and I and everything we do with respect to not only an opportunity for spycraft, but also to develop their AI, their ability to do machine learning. The reason they're number one in the world in that is because they collect vast amounts of data on the world to drive their AI algorithms. You can only be as good as your data when you're building AI capabilities. So it's a multifaceted win for them. So you really think they're number one in AI at this point? They are. I would say number one in AI and, and supercomputing our capability because they collect data with a shop vac around the globe. With a shop vac. So we're storing a lot of our data in the cloud. Mm -hmm. um, does that present security risks? Oh, absolutely. You know, we, a couple of years ago, we had a, um, a Chinese APT10 breach of a managed service providers, right? So China said, hey, uh, let's not start doing all these whack-a-mole companies. Let's go into service providers and get mass vast amount of companies right so they breached their way into a managed service provider multiple around the world and started taking everybody's data right so you had initially 150 companies that had all their data stolen through a third-party cloud service provider so china's getting better at that so we need to be more effective and efficient in how we protect that so yes cloud service providers uh third-party data aggregators need to be on the watch just like equifax right we would never think the equifax data would be at risk and yet China took it all. Does having this personal data also give China a tool um, to target people within the U.S. who they might want to compromise or leverage in some way? Absolutely. And give me some examples. So, you know, if you look at um, aggregation of the OPM data breach that happened in 2015, 21 million Americans had all their security clearance files stolen, right? So now you have someone who has a security clearance or maybe applied for one. And then you add in their travel Marriott data. Then you add in their Equifax financial data. And they might have some financial issues, right? They have that aware of them. They say, okay, well, Bill Avenina, he has this top secret security clearance, but he's got some financial hardship. He's filed for bankruptcy. Oh, and we also have his Anthem records. He's got a child with special needs. He is really vulnerable. So let's put our efforts towards Mr. Ebenina because he right now is really in the need for some money or financial assistance. 
where the crux is here, Gene, is that they won't just do this overtly. They might provide you that capability without you knowing that's a Chinese spy or a cutout, and that you look at it as an actual thing. And then they have you, um, I think, by the ear. And three years later, your next thing you're doing is providing them classified documents. Can you uh, can you give me some examples of where this has happened? Yeah, we see um, we've seen the last couple of years. Uh, majority of the, the Communist Party, the MSS's activities have been recruiting people on LinkedIn. And they've been recruiting people as legitimate members of business community, engineers, uh, scientists, uh, think tanks. They recruit you over to China to give a presentation. And then when you're over there, they say, hey, thanks for the presentation. And they give you an envelope with $2,000 a stipend. And they videotape that. You don't know that's nefarious. You don't know that's the actual MSS. You think it's a legitimate business opportunity to present your research over in China. And next thing you know, six months later, that video is being used to blackmail you and your security clearance. So I think that is something we can continually drive to educate. We put a movie out last year called The Nevernight Connection, which really exemplifies how they do this. And sometimes, you know, China's got 25, 30,000 attempts a day on LinkedIn to recruit people around the globe. If they're just lucky 1% of the time, are they targeting particular kinds of people, people in particular industries or with particular skill sets? Absolutely. And I just want, I just want to, and it's not just government, Gene. So I want to, I want to read to you what we just hot, hot up the presses, where China's prior, priorities are right now, specifically in what they're trying to collect. So um, there's five, five, I would say columns, clean energy, biotechnology, aerospace, deep sea, information technology, and manufacturing. So if you are working in any one of those fields, you are vulnerable for, for being targeted on a social media account, in person at a conference, or by an intelligence service member around the globe uh, for your information. How do you protect yourself? You have to be educated. And again, this is really, uh, I think the hard part here is how does the government, intelligence service in the United States, educate and inform that engineer in a mechanical factory or, or in a biotech, at the same time, without being, you know, um, whistling through the graveyard, without being the big bad government making up really, really crazy stories. How do we get that sweet spot to educate and inform the American populace and those at risk without making it sound like we're the boogeyman? It's been a really, really tough road the last four years, but we've made significant progress uh, utilizing good uh, videos, um, capabilities of the NCSC, the FBI. We've been out a lot with the private sector trying to show that, hey, you might be an engineer at an engineering facility and you think you're safe, but you're not. And here's three vignettes where people like you were targeted. What about the infiltration of academic institutions? It seems there have been several cases relating to that. Well, I would say several is probably um, a small number, right? There's a lot. And I think uh, they- Do you have get, a number? Uh, well, I think we're over 50 in the last decade. Um, and I think we're probably increasing every year and they're getting bigger and bigger. If you look at just what happened last year, just what Harvard and MIT alone, right? The Harvard case was the biggest case ever until that was MIT- the head of the chemistry department right. there, right? And then the MIT came, it was even bigger, right? So when you look at the amount of cases we have, you go back to MD Anderson, University of Texas, um, and then last year, we identified uh, up to 2,000 PLA military members studying here in the U.S. undercover, and then we kicked them all out, right? It's a really big problem. How did we not know that these people were PLA and they were studying here? Because they lie on their visa applications. 
And if you work for the Chinese military and you apply to come over here as a student, we have no way to know when you go to that consulate and fill an application that you're lying. So you're a student here in the U.S. What are you doing that's nefarious? Well, if you're especially in the postgraduate work and then you're in the hard scientists, science areas, what they're doing is they're having shadow labs. They're getting research from NIH, NSF, DOE, DOD. They're studying whatever that technology is. At the same time, they continue to study and gain research. They're secretly sending it back to Beijing or their home institute. Or, and there's shadow labs and shadow research. So basically, we become an organism for funding Chinese research and development without them having to invest a dollar. We have seen this surge in anti-Asian violence, and I'm wondering if uh, concerns about that uh, come up against this concern about espionage by Chinese students in the United States. It's a great question, a great point, and, and you're correct. And, and I've spent a lot of time on, on Capitol Hill dealing with uh, congressmen, women, and senators about this issue because we have to do a better job of bifurcating the issue of the nefarious activity of the Communist Party of China and the Chinese citizens, where we have to be able to say that's not the same, or Chinese Americans that are here in the US. So I think we're getting better, but we're not there where we need to be. And I think the government has to be more effective and efficient in telling the story that just because the Communist Party of China is doing these bad things, doesn't make every, every single human being of Chinese descent bad. And I, I think we have to be collective in doing this. And I think Congressional leadership has done that the last year, but these efforts to do this, Gene, have ebbed and flowed the last decade or so. But I do think we have to do a better job. And I also want to point out that the, China, the, the violence against Asian Americans is a bigger issue, right? And you could throw COVID into that. You can throw the virus. You could throw uh, President Trump and, and the China rhetoric. There's a whole lot of areas where you could say uh, there's an increase in, in violence against Asian Americans, not just the spying, but the spying part of it and the activity that we're seeing, even now with legislation from the Hill to pre help prevent the Chinese espionage, that all gets added into the bucket and where you could have a radical, unfortunately, uh, uh, institute violence on an Asian American person here in the United States. You mentioned the pandemic, and I'm just curious as to your thoughts on the Wuhan lab theory of where the virus came from. Do you have an opinion on that or any I knowledge? I have a both, right? And I won't speak to the knowledge, but, but I do, my opinion is, I think we're going to find out um, that it did not come from an animal or a bat, right? So I think it's a matter of time. I, and I, I put, I'm a former investigator. I wasn't a good one, but I, I, I know how to investigate and put clues together. Um, a couple of things I see right now, um, and I won't venture into the intelligence that I was, I was privy to. Oh, come on. <laughs> but, you, but you have evidence now percolating um, going back to the fall of 2019 and probably the summer of 2019 with some inferences of people getting sick before that. And those people don't exist anymore, right? So they disappeared. Secondarily, you see the effort that the Communist Party of China is putting in trying to push back this narrative. This would be the worst thing that's happened to China in decades if it comes out that that virus leaked from one of their labs and they covered it up. So you're seeing a massive effort globally by the Chinese United Front within a disinformation campaign to push down this investigation. So for me, the effort they're doing globally to do that tells me something fishy happened in Wuhan in 2019. Oh, we're going to get back to you on that if we ever have a definitive answer. Um, another question for you relative to China. You mentioned intellectual property theft and, you know, the dollars involved are just astounding.
I remember reporting on this 12, 15 years ago. Why the heck is this still a problem? Have American uh, business people left not only the back door open, but the front door open that have allowed people to come in and steal that intellectual property? All the above. And again, let's go back to what we talked about before, where CEOs and, and corporations have not put their time, attention, and funding into securing their ecosystems. Security has always been a cost center, not part of mission. But, but then, your intellectual property is worth so much. I can't, you can't convince me more about that. And not only that, but it's the, what I think uh, Senator Rubio called the greatest brain drain we've had in a decade uh, with our data. And, and if you're researching something in, in a company or academic institution and your partner is sending it back to another country so they could be first to market and sell it on 30 cents and a dollar, then what are we doing here, right? So it doesn't make any sense. I also think that when we look at the, our, what makes America awesome in our democracy and our capitalist society is that we're an open society and we're collaborative. That's also our biggest vulnerability, right? Because we want to believe everything is good. Everybody is fair and honest. That is not the case, right? So you look at the amount of, it, and Gene, I'll also say back in 2010, 11, when I was working this effort, we used to say, look at the, the Chinese Communist Party stole all these plans. They built an aircraft carrier. Well, it can't float. Well, they built all these planes. Well, they can't fly. That's no longer the case. Because back then, prior to Xi Jinping, all those awesome Chinese scientists that would come over here to study in the United States would see how awesome it is here, and they would stay. That's no longer the case. Xi Jinping makes everyone go back. So now they're... Uh, integrating not only the theft of all the IP and trade secrets with all the amazing engineers they have to be able to build a functional, reliable military and air force. I would say it's a collaborative failure by the U.S. I would say- Collaborative failure. Yeah, collaborative failure. And I think there's been some um, covering the eyes with respect to investment with China over the decade, I sure, with private equity venture capital. At the same time, the U.S. government has not done the most effective job in advising and informing them of the dangers and perils of investment. You know, uh, with the Chinese laws that are out there with mandatory data sales, with the, with the understanding that when you enter into a joint venture with a company uh, from China, they know everything about you. They have all your PowerPoints. They've stolen everything before you get to negotiate. And I think we've done not a good job of explaining that to CEOs. Uh, let me ask you for critical steps that should be taken. Again, I think there needs to be first, and, and, and as an, now an outsider in the government, I, looked at, I look back at where we were good and where we weren't. I think the government needs to have a sales and marketing team, right? We know a lot of stuff, but there's just really no organization that does sales and marketing of these issues, right? It's willy-nilly, whack-a-mole. NCSC, we did a little bit of this, but we are a small boutique organization. The FBI does a little bit of it but that are investigation-based. The intelligence community doesn't do any of it. So Commerce, Treasury all have an impact, Department of Defense. There needs to be, like we have, State Department has organizations, you know, the Global Engagement Center that works overseas. We need the same kind of structure domestically where we can consistently advise and reform the private sector and academia of these threats. And they know where it can come to get intelligence. Number two, Gene, we need to have a, a for real public-private partnership of intelligence sharing, both ways. I think the NSA, CIA, FBI have to be more forthcoming and sharing 
classified information with CEOs and decision makers who can make viable decisions. At the same time, the government has to be willing to receive amazing cyber threat information that we get from the private sector. Some of these companies that we deal with in the Fortune 100 have just the most amazing cybersecurity capabilities. We should be obtaining that intelligence as well. So I think there needs to be, I would say, um, a very forward-thinking construct. The last thing I'll say, Gene, this is really a little bit, I would say, common sense, but we haven't done it. So if you are a company and you're going to hire a person from a Middle Eastern country, you can call people and get a check done on these people to say if they're a member of a terrorist organization, right? You, there's NCTC, there's a thing called TIDE. You could find out. We need to do that from nation state threat actors as well. In 2015, Xi Jinping lied to, to President Obama and said, we're going to stop doing committing economic espionage because he used the word in the cyber realm. What they did was increase the insider threat capacity, right? And the FBI has arrested over 300 people in the last five years um, in the private sector for insider threats. We need to have an ability to provide the private sector a way to vet some of these people to ensure that they either they are who they are or they're not who they're not. One HR professional told me last month, Gene, that we have no way to vet a resume that comes from overseas, particularly in the Communist Party of China or Moscow. If they said they went to a particular state university in Szechuan, we have no way to validate. We don't know anybody that speaks Chinese here. So how in the world are we going to ask our human resource professionals to vet these people who come over here to work? It's a complex problem. You have now left government after a long career. I'm curious if there's any particular um, investigation or situation um, that has really stuck with you, that has really in some way fundamentally changed you or changed your outlook? The, you know, we had a spy case in New Jersey. Uh, his name is Leandro Aragoncillo. He was convicted of espionage um, for spying for the Philippine government. He was an analyst with the FBI who previously worked for Vice President Cheney at the White House. So for me, who leading that investigation, I was shocked at how easy it was for a country as small as the Philippines to penetrate the US government and get classified information. That's what really turned me on to espionage and nation state threat actors and got me out of the terrorism game. And I was obsessed with that. Being here in DC, when I was head of counterintelligence and counterterrorism um, at the Washington field office, I would say uh, shocking and really head shaking was the, the attempted assassination by Iran of a Saudi diplomat in Washington, DC. The brazen mindset that the Iranians could assassinate a Saudi diplomat in Washington, D.C., I think shook me to my core. I really think that that's something that I look at as, wow, we need to be better, more effective, more efficient. And I think the last thing, Gene, is more recent, and I'm going to point to uh, January 6th, where I, I look at it as, you know, I was still head of counterintelligence security, and I, I, still, I, I still have issues dealing with what happened to our country. Your thoughts on the fact that there apparently is not going to be a bipartisan independent commission to investigate the events of January 6th? Uh, I think there should be. Uh, I think it's a big enough event. I mean, I don't think how, I don't think you could put a scale of how big of an event it was. And no matter how you classify what, what you think happened on that day, the fact that it happened on that day and people penetrated the seat of government in 2021, we are not Belarus. 
right? We, we are not. We are the United States of America. So if we are going to prevent something like that to happen again, we need to understand the totality of what happened there, how it happened, and what were the roots of that. But if we don't get to the core fundamental problem, not just how do we secure the capital, how do we get there, then it's bound to happen again. In the past, you've compared Iran to a caged animal. Is that still the case, even though the Biden administration appears to be doing some outreach to the regime? Um, yes, I do. I think uh, Iran is in a tough spot geopolitically, uh, militarily, economically. Uh, that all manifests itself uh, in their willingness and commitment to continue to build uh, the nuclear weapons. And I think with the Biden administration's uh, continued outreach and trying to get back in a diplomatic scale, uh, is, is one lane of that highway. I think other lanes are uh, multifaceted, but I'll point to one here in my space. You know, the killing of Soleimani uh, last year is front and center of their minds every day. And I don't think there's any doubt that they're going to look to enact revenge at some point uh, in our nation's future. And they're historically have been prone to do that in our financial services sector. So I look for Iran to some, at some point push back uh, and fight back and retaliate for that death. Uh, it could be next month and it could be five years from now. Your theory on the Havana syndrome, these energy attacks on, on US diplomats and, and intelligence agents, who do you think might be responsible for that? Well, I'm gonna answer as a private citizen now and I'm not gonna address any uh, classified information that I may or may not have had historically. But I, I look at uh, a core fundamental issue of intent. And I'm going to speak specifically about what happened in Havana, right? So at the time we saw the attacks happen in Havana, what was going on? Well, the Russians and the Chinese intelligence services and military apparatus were putting more resources into Cuba uh, to facilitate their activities in the Southern hemisphere. And it's only 90 miles from our shoreline. So when you have these attacks and which forces our State Department to close our embassy, it takes all of our collection assets out of Cuba. So you have to ask yourself, who had the intent to close our embassy down in Havana? And that leads to me to just one country. Now, proving that, that country would be Russia. Proving that is another issue altogether, right? So at the end of the day, our embassy in Cuba is closed. Who was the most prone to benefit from that closure is, I think, one of the clues we have to continue to drive. The rest of the global issues with the uh, individuals who are potential victims, another issue altogether. That's going to be a big challenge for U.S. government because we owe it to each one of those professionals who agreed to serve overseas to not only protect them, but to come to the bottom, get to the bottom of why they're sick and what happened to them. And that's the least the U.S. government can do. Evanina says he really, truly believes that China poses an existential threat to the United States. A reminder, you can find a lot of great Spy Talk content on Substack. Please subscribe. Coming up next, an unsolved mystery surrounding the Iranian hostage crisis. Jeff Stein's interview with Kai Bird coming up. I've known Kai Bird for decades. I watched him with a mixture of admiration and some envy as he accumulated one journalistic accolade after another, including a Pulitzer Prize and National Book Critics Circle Award for American Prometheus, The Triumph and Tragedy of J. Robert Oppenheimer, co-authored with Martin Sherwood. But Byrd doesn't need me to puff up his latest book, The Outlier, The Unfinished Presidency of Jimmy Carter, due out later this month. 
the advance notices have been glittering. Publishers Weekly, for one, called it a lucid, penetrating portrait that should spur reconsideration of Carter's much maligned presidency. What drew our interest, however, was a spooky chapter in it about Ronald Reagan's future CIA director, William Casey, and an October surprise he allegedly plotted to deny Jimmy Carter a second term. Welcome, Kai Bird, to the Spy Talk podcast. Great to have you here. Thank you. Your new book, The Outlier, is a well-rounded portrait of Jimmy Carter, 39th president of the United States, from his boyhood in Georgia to his one term in the White House from 1981 to 1985. But you have a chapter in it that interests us particularly at Spy Talk. It's about Bill Casey, later to become Ronald Reagan's CIA director, and a clandestine operation he carried out during the 1980 campaign, which became known as the October Surprise. Tell us about it. So, yes, it's a fabulous story, uh, and it's a spy story, so I thought it would appeal to you guys at Spy Talk. It does indeed. It's, uh, you know, at the center of it is the legendary spy master, William J. Casey, who became Ronald Reagan's CIA director, but in 1980, in the summer, he was Reagan's uh, campaign manager. Mm-hmm. And of course, Casey is is an unguided missile. He's you know this legendary OSS guy. That was the most fun he had in his whole life was working for the OSS during World War II out of London. And uh, he loved covert action and disinformation campaigns and skullduggery. And uh, you know he he was a character. Uh, he had this mumble that no one could understand. Um, and I remember I interviewed at one point another legendary spy master, Claire George. And he told me, I liked Casey. He was nuts. <laughs> he was. He was like quite a figure in Washington when he was in office as a shambling kind of rumpled right. of of. A great way to, he was, he was great at blowing fog at congressional committees. But anyway, back to 1980, um, there were hostages, American hostages in Iran. And the Reagan team, and Casey in particular, thought this was an issue that we could leverage to keep Jimmy Carter from winning a second term. So what did he do? Right. Well, he was very fearful that Carter would pull off what was called an October surprise. Something would happen just before the November 4th election that would flip things with the electorate. And their greatest fear was that Carter would somehow find a way to release the hostages. And you know, this crisis had gone on for hundreds of days and it would go on for 444 days. Um, so in the summer of 1980, Casey is, Reagan's campaign manager. And the allegation, which emerged long, some years after his death in in 1990, 91, was that in the summer of 1980, Bill Casey took a little leave from the campaign in late July and flew to London. And indeed he did fly to London. The, the ostensible purpose was for an academic conference on the OSS, his favorite subject. 
and uh, he gave a paper there. And he was in London for a, a period of like two or three days. Um, and so the question emerged, did that give him enough time to have a short flight into Madrid, Spain, where he allegedly met with a representative, the Ayatollah Khomeini, and they had some private diplomacy negotiations in which Casey basically said to this Iranian, um, you know, don't worry about the hostages, we can give you a better deal. Ronald Reagan is a better politician and he'll give you a better deal uh, than Jimmy Carter. In fact, he was asking them to keep, keep the hostages locked up in the American embassy in Tehran until election day. And uh, this was investigated when the allegations came out in the late, in the early 90s. There was a congressional investigation and it, journalists at Newsweek and ABC and whatnot. Robert Perry, the late Robert Perry, a famous investigative journalist, dug into it and wrote a whole book about it. So did Gary Sick. Um, and it all became a little mushy. And uh, the congressional investigation was inconclusive. It was led by Lee Hamilton, a very respected Indiana congressman. And at one point, Lee Hamilton actually had subpoena power and subpoenaed the State Department and the White House for any documents related to Bill Casey's alleged travel itinerary in the summer of 1980. And it, they didn't get anything. They just kind of piddled out. And in fact, some media organizations, particularly Newsweek, went to great lengths to debunk the whole idea of this conspiracy. So did New, the New Republic and other outlets, yeah. Yeah, that's kind of curious. I, I don't know if that would happen in today's media environment, but uh, putting that aside for the moment, um, you cite a memorandum or a note from uh, Boyd and Gray, the White House counsel. Tell us, tell us about that. That seems to really put the, the nail in the credibility of the uh, October surprise conspiracy. In fact, that it did happen. Well, I believe something happened. And I believe that Bill Casey did go to Madrid and did take that meeting. And the evidence is, was a, a White House memo prepared by uh, C. Boyden Gray's Deputy White House Counsel. Boyden Gray was the White House Counsel to the first Bush president. And his uh, Deputy White House Counsel, Paul Beach, wrote a memo in response to the subpoena from Lee Hamilton saying, Well, we've got to, you know, make a search for documents. We've asked for any documents from the State Department. And here's one that they came up with. It, it refers to a cable from the U.S. Embassy in Madrid uh, reporting that Bill Casey is in town for purposes unknown, end quote. Yeah, you I know, think that's pretty definitive. It is. Uh, you know, I think this is uh, unfortunately uh, destined to remain kind of a muddy event in almost ancient political history now. 
But I have to say, your your chapter on this was absolutely compelling and fascinating. And for listeners who might think, well, this is just too complicated to follow, I'd, I'd really uh, recommend them getting your book, reading this chapter, which has, to me, a very persuasive account of what went down in 1980. But um, this isn't the first time that a uh, candidate, a Republican candidate, as it turns out, um, used a dirty trick, conspired with uh, foreign personalities to keep um, a Democrat from being elected, right? We, we, for example, in 1968, it's, it's been told more than a few times now, uh, Richard Nixon tried to stop Lyndon Johnson, uh, the president, uh, from working out a Vietnam peace deal. Tell us about that. Yeah, well, he had, again, very similar to Casey's backdoor diplomacy with the Iranians, the Nixon campaign had a backdoor uh, source in, in South Vietnam that was which they used to encourage uh, General Thieu and Key not to sign on, not to cooperate with Johnson's peace negotiations. Just to interject to tell people, President Thieu and Vice President Key, they were the top Vietnamese, South Vietnamese South officials Vietnamese. of the regime that we were backing in Vietnam. Exactly. And, uh, you know, the, there were rumors and stories about this back channel October surprise in 1968 and Republicans pushed back like they did in 1980 when the investigation of Casey began in the early 90s. And uh, finally, Jack Farrell, uh, the presidential biographer of Nixon, uh, found, among other things, a diary of uh, uh, Haldeman, the chief of staff to Nixon, where he laid it out and said, we've had these negotiations and we're sending the message and we're, you know, hoping to, to prevent Johnson from pulling out of the, his hat a October surprise peace, peace uh, agreement that would uh, help Hubert Humphrey win the 68 election. So it was proven. Lyndon so Johnson are capable of doing this. Lyndon Johnson got wind of this, didn't he? <clears throat> he did. And he debated about whether he should go public with what was virtually a treasonous act. And he just, you know, he was a spent political force by then. And he just didn't have the moxie to do it. Mm. He thought it would be too poisonous. Mm. Uh, Fascinating. Yeah. Uh, then we go to 2016, although you don't get into this in your book, but I'm just uh, curious to ask about it. Uh, Trump's son, Don Jr., infamously welcomed dirty dirt on Hillary from a Kremlin go-between. And Trump's campaign manager, Paul Manafort, gave polling data to a Russian intermediary, which could help Moscow tailor its clandestine social media operations. And then there was all that stuff about Trump pressuring Ukraine's prime minister to coerce Ukraine and other foreign countries into providing damaging narratives about then 2020 Democratic presidential candidate Joe Biden, as well as misinformation relating to Russian interference in the 2016 elections for which he was impeached. Was that a kind of October surprise or was that just something different, hardball politics. Well, it's, it's, it, it, it involves conspiring with foreign adversaries of the United States. It did. It involved Republicans going 
off the reservation, so to speak, and engaging in, in trying to conduct US foreign policy, which is you know, uh, ostensibly a violation of the Logan Act. Um, but you know, I find it uh, in a sort of a different category from the October surprises of 1968 and 1980. Mm -hmm. in, uh, in those cases, Republicans were actually interfering in matters of war and peace. Uh, in 68, you know, negotiations to bring the war in Vietnam to an end. In 1980, in a more even egregious manner, I mean, they're interfering with the release of over 50 American hostages who'd been kept for months and months. Mm -hmm. yeah. It's an outrageous act of, uh, you know, of interference with the president's duly elected foreign policy powers. Mm -hmm. So I, I find it a sort of, I find the October surprise of 1980 to be just shocking. And mm -hmm. yet, you know, you're right. It's considered by most people to be kind of ancient history and muddied, muddied waters. But again, coming back to this memo about the the cable from the Madrid embassy reporting that Bill Casey was in town for purposes unknown. They, they, that memo suggests that the Bush White House found that cable, knew about it, and did not turn it over to Lee Hamilton's uh, special task force on the October surprise. Mm -hmm. And when I called up Lee Hamilton and asked him, did you ever see this cable? And he said, no, I, you know, and if it existed, I should have been given it. Um, so that's, that's pretty egregious too. Mm -hmm. It sort of teaches us to be, I'm not sure, skeptical about these congressional special commissions and investigations, but I think a lesson here is that we really in the media, reporters, really, it's incumbent upon us to really dig deep into these commissions and investigate the documents they're using and uh, keep an open mind that they may have missed things along the way. Unfortunately, uh, all this we found out about uh, the, that October surprise came out uh, too many years later to do anything about it. No one was prosecuted. Right. Um, and it was just swept under the rug. And, you know, the other aspect of all this is that I'm convinced that if you look at the timeline, um, if Casey did this, he established a back channel with the Iranians in 1980. And then once he becomes CIA director, they, the new Reagan administration does actually authorize Israeli arms sales to the Iranians, who, who by then are desperate to receive arms because they're in a major war with Iraq. Saddam Hussein's Iraq. <clears throat> and this is the beginning of the Iran-Contra scandal, mm -hmm. which blows up in 1986-87, when it's discovered that Bill Casey, the same guy, had been involved in negotiations with the Iranians and their proxies in Lebanon over uh, arms for hostages. So, so it's same thing. And, you know, Casey loved this kind of stuff. So it's very plausible. So the first illicit, traitorous, clandestine contacts with the Iranians uh, who were holding U.S. hostages planted the seeds when it went unchecked 
Four right. years later, yet another illicit, traitorous, you might say, uh, no, deal with the, the Iranians to finance another uh, illegal operation, the funding of the Nicaraguan Contras in that uh, civil war that was going on. Exactly. So in the middle of this, we have a kind of a rogue CIA director. He was, he had that reputation. I think even his friends, like Claire George said, he loved him, but he was nuts. Yeah. Yeah. But he was their kind of nut. Yeah. Anyway, um, can you see another October surprise coming down the road? Does your imagination leap to 2022 or 2024 and seeing how, I mean, in this particularly rancid political environment we're in now, it, 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 you know, it's not hard to imagine that the extremist elements of the Republican Party, which unfortunately seems to encompass a lot of the Republican Party these days, will try to carry off another kind of clandestine operation to uh, keep Joe Biden from winning a second term? You know, I, in this polarized political atmosphere, uh, I, it's even more plausible to see partisan Republican operatives saying to themselves, well, this is an illegal presidency. He's not legitimate. He stole the election and we, therefore it's justifiable that we can do, we should be able to do anything necessary to win the next time. This so, is what we've been we've been reduced to, and we're here. I believe, speaking as an historian, you know, Richard Nixon and Ronald Reagan's campaign manager Bill Casey helped to pave the way for this kind of activity and behavior, and uh, they're to blame. And history history matters. Kai Bird, it's just great to have you here. I urge everybody to go out and uh, get your new book, The Outlier, uh, a biography of Jimmy Carter. And for Spy Talk listeners, particularly bear down on that fascinating chapter on the October surprise. Thanks, Kai. I'm sure we'll have you back again with your next book. <laughs> well, who knows? Thank you, Jeff. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. So that was really interesting, not just to hear about the history, but how it influenced later events. Thanks a lot, Jeff. Yes, they say history is never past, is never over, it's always ongoing. Anyway, we hope you enjoyed this edition of Spy Talk, and we'll see you next week. This is Jeff Stein. And a reminder, Spy Talk is on Substack. Please subscribe. I'm Jean Meserve. Have a great week and join us next time. For more original reporting and insights like this, subscribe to spytalk.co on Substack and follow us on Twitter at talk underscore spy. If you enjoyed our podcast, subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.